Now, last week, you know, we started a new sermon series. I've been calling it Ways of the Wilderness. And in that sermon, we were talking a little bit about like what happens when our big religious narratives break down, right? So we're talking on this sort of large scale picture. Um, we're talking about a little bit personally when our personal religious narratives work down, but really also looking at the long arc of history when some of the like major tenets of our tradition start to be challenged. And we were talking about how we live in one of these times, and there's different names for these times we're living in. Some people are calling it like a new reformation. Some people call it emergence faith. Some call it convergence faith. Some are calling it the age of the spirit. But it'll probably take, I don't know, a couple hundred years, I'm guessing, before there's some kind of consensus label. We just know what's happening. We can kind of read the signs of the times that we are in. And in that, we were talking a little bit about how in times like this, there's a significant minority who tend to start innovating outside of the centers of religious power. And I see our church as among some of those like innovators who are working on sort of the margins of faith. And I see the organization that we officially joined this summer, the Fellowship of Affirming Ministries, call it TFAM, as also occupying a similar space. So this morning, what I'd like to do is talk to you a little bit more about TFAM so that we can better understand as a church just what we're part of, what we're joining. But to do that, first, I want to give some context um, for just like why it resonates with me, like the things that I'm looking for as I was looking for friends. If you guys have known Ken or myself for a long period of time, some of this might be a little bit familiar to it. I used to teach some of what I'm talking about here in classes over a decade ago. But it still informs my own framework, and so I think that's actually really helpful to share as a reminder for us and also for those of you for whom maybe you've never heard this. So you've probably heard me mention a woman's name this summer a couple of times. Her name is Phyllis Tickle. I don't know if that rings a bell. Her name has a little bit, um, it's a little memorable, right? Phyllis was an Episcopalian. She was an academic. She was a poet. I believe she started her own publishing house. She was a publisher. And then back in the early 1990s, she was asked to found the religion department at Publishers Weekly. So that was back when I worked at Borders in their corporate office. This was like the industry rag, so to speak, right? Everybody read Publishers Weekly. It's what you read if you're in the book industry. And so with her work in academia and with her work at PW, she was able to get sort of a bird's eye view of what was happening on the landscape of faith in America. And so she started writing about what she was seeing. And her writing was, and it continues to be, really influential among some of the people who were doing this work on the margins. She gave some helpful framework. So if you know Ken, um, she and Ken were like really dear friends. I think she was probably about 25 years older than him. Um, it sounds hokey, but I think of them as like spiritual companions. They were like uh, pen pals for many years, and they just really got each other. Um, just for some context, for those of you who might be coming out of the like Exvangelical space, if that makes sense to you. Uh, my wife Rachel spoke at the first Why Christian Conference. So, just to give some context, is this ringing a bell for some of you? You know, like Rachel Held Evans, Nadia Boltz Weber, some of those thinkers who are in that space started this big conference of people who were starting to talk about these things. Rachel was one of the speakers. I came along as just like a spouse. Um, but as all the speakers the night before the conference began were having dinner, the person on the phone with all of them on FaceTime on her deathbed was Phyllis, kind of giving her grandmotherly blessing and saying, yeah, this is part of what I was seeing. And so I think she had a really helpful way of talking about what's happening. 
and she described Christianity. I just have to use your imaginations here because I, didn't, I wasn't able to get the notes like how I wanted them in time. But she described Christianity as broken into like four major quadrants. And so I'm going to share those just knowing that like there's no denomination that like fits snugly into one of those, but I find it a helpful picture. The first one she described is the liturgical quadrant. And she said that quadrant represents the church communions for whom sort of the, the proper faith-filled celebration of the liturgy or the rituals is of central importance, right? It's like the order of the worship service, how they're done, what is worn, what is said, that that is how the story of faith is passed down through that ritual. And so that quadrant would include like the Roman Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox traditions, a lot of the Anglican Episcopalians, like our friends here in the building, um, many of the Lutherans. So the, the next quadrant is the social justice quadrant. And so that includes churches that preach what used to be called the social gospel, right? So for its emphasis on justice. So they boldly speak against the injustices that are happening, racism, sexism, poverty, and they're working to bring about liberation. And so that broadly includes many of the historically black church congregations like AME, uh, the United Methodists are generally in that, and so on. Down here, she described the evangelical quadrant, and that represents people for whom the Bible is of central importance. Now, all of the Christians would say the Bible is important, but we know that there's like a sort of special Bible thumping uh, <laughs> emphasis maybe in that tradition. The born-again conversion experience is a central identifier. Um, people in that quadrant would say like evangelism is a priority. And so I think we're pretty familiar with those churches, many of us. A lot of the non-denominational churches fit in that as well as Southern Baptists. And then over here, we'd have like the renewalist quadrant. And that is marked by uh, strands of faith that have renewed interest in experience, right? So that includes many of the Pentecostal, or I've heard now Pentecostals even not quite the right term. They're saying spirit-empowered church traditions. So the Assemblies of God, the Church of God in Christ, um, what's called the Independent Network Charismatic Churches, which might not ring a bell, but is the fastest growing Christianity in the U.S. right now. Super homophobic, but that's a whole other story. So that renewalist quadrant is coming a lot from you know, the early Pentecostal. We talked a few weeks ago about like Azusa Street. I might do a whole other sermon on that. But the early Pentecostal tradition, actually at its genesis, had some pretty cool things going on and that they had men and women leading together, which was revolutionary at that point. Um, it was, there were people of different races and cultures and educational backgrounds, socioeconomic traditions who were all doing church together in this space. Um, and then of course, because it's American, we have not done our racial justice work, it eventually split along um, the lines of race. And so the Assemblies of God became the predominantly white church tradition, which is what I grew up in actually. And then the Church of God and Christ became the predominantly black church tradition in that. So that would all be part of the renewalist quadrant. So if you're from a Christian background, and I know not everyone is in here, um, but if you are, you can probably trace your family history, your significant spiritual influences using this sort of quadrant as a map of the landscape. Now, one of the big developments in Christianity over the last 100 to 150 years has been an increase in what they call like border blending, right, where it's like a mixture of these different things. So like the Vineyard Movement, the one that fired me, was definitely a border-blended evangelical renewalist tradition and kind of fit in that space. Many of the places you come from might have some border blending. But then over um, the last um, 
decades, people from different traditions have been blending these in even more meaningful ways. Right? So people from the renewalist tradition uh, might be incorporating some of the like, liturgical prayer traditions. People in the liturgical quadrant are embracing social justice concerns like alleviating poverty, right? You get it. So while this increased border blending started decades ago, it seemed to be really picking up speed in the 90s and the early aughts, and that's probably because of the rise of the internet, right? We have a little bit more access to information really quickly. And so I'd say the church really started this sort of labor process for what is called emergence Christianity. Most younger people don't know the theological differences between being an American Baptist and being a Presbyterian, right? It doesn't really matter for most. It certainly doesn't matter in the way that it did 60 years ago. What people are doing is just taking the practices that are helpful for them and just like discarding the things that are less helpful. And so what Phyllis envisioned here was like Jesus at the center of these four quadrants, right? She envisioned it as like the thing that we're all moving toward in this new reformation. I would say if it's helpful for you to envision um, like the creator in the center of that or the spirit or the trinity, I think that is fine too. But the general sense is that God is inviting us to learn from each other, to take like the treasures or the gifts that are hidden in the various sort of fields of religion, to find those and bring those together, the best of what each group has to offer, try and get rid of the toxic stuff in our faith and reimagine it so that we're not contributing to the harm that is being done, right? To the earth, to minority groups, to the global south, to try and, and, and reimagine something meaningful and culturally relevant and inclusive and justice-oriented and with the teeth to address some of the challenges that face us here, right? To speak out against white supremacy and authoritarianism. So much of the church was completely immobilized, right, during some really bad authoritarianism uprisings, to speak out against unregulated capitalism, right? These are things that are like warping and distorting the heart of the faith tradition. And we've become, we've come to a place where we're not able to address it. So last week I mentioned corner dwelling, right? So Phyllis also imagined that as people were sort of moving toward the center or leaving faith altogether, that others would move toward the corners Right? So they would sort of like batten down the hatches and they would retreat there and they would set up camp. And when we talked last week, we talked about Rabbi B'nai Lappi. She described those people in a slightly different way, but she said these are the people that hold on to their version of the master's story in spite of all evidence that it's not holding up. Right? So these are the people in the corners who aren't interested in learning from the people outside of their own tradition, who just assume that their in-group has a corner on the truth. We'd be a lot better off if everybody would just recognize that. And so 20 years or so after Phyllis started talking about these corner dwellers, for me, I think that's proved increasingly accurate of a description, at least in my experience. So this isn't a perfect picture of what's happening in Western church because it lacks nuance, right? Uh, there's 36,000 denominations, right? So there's all kinds of like exceptions and nuance, and we're talking about a big complex system. But I still find it helpful in terms of just the way I'm navigating things. When we started Blue Ocean, Ken and I were hoping to take some of these elements of all four of the quadrants to take like an early stab at what the center might look like in, that, in our context, right? So how we do church even here will probably look different 20 years from now than how we're doing it today, as we're just like adapting and trying to figure out what's meaningful for us as a community. And then we're learning from other people who are doing these similar things and we're kind of hanging out 
near the center. Now, Phyllis kind of pictured this quadrant as, as like a plane, right? Sort of flat with Jesus in the center. For me, it's a little more helpful to picture it more like a plane, but with like the center jutting out. Does that make sense? Like a 3D picture almost. Because I see it's more like the people who are moving toward that center are kind of hanging out on the outskirts a little bit more. It's more the margins. We are not the majority of Western Christians right now. We are over here. We're doing our thing, and we're trying to cross-pollinate with other people who are also doing their thing. You know, it reminds me a little bit about how, like, Jesus lived in a similar time, right, where his meta-story was breaking down. There was a lot of innovating going on on the edges, and he would sort of, I like to say, bounce in and out of the center of his religious tradition. He'd go into Jerusalem, and he'd go to the temple, and sometimes he'd be critiquing, sometimes he would just be worshiping, and he was interacting with the teachers and the leaders there, but then he'd always bounce back out, right? He and his cousin John, who was in a scene, and he was kind of fermenting ideas among the people who were doing this innovating, the Pharisees, these other rabbis, and, and um, different people who were doing things, the people he was hanging out with. And so I see us the same. A lot of the people who are doing this margin work are kind of bouncing in and out of these centers of religious power, different denominations, and then kind of, let's learn, let's go back here, let's learn. And so there's this sort of fluidity that's what's happening. So that brings me to TFAM. When we first started the church, we were looking for friends. Um, and we found quite a few friends, but I was really looking for some, like, maybe a church network. Um, there were some short-lived ones that were largely predominantly white progressive churches who were trying to come together and form this sort of new center of emergence Christianity. I found them frustrating, probably for the same reasons that they were short-lived. Um, I don't need to go into that. I'm happy to talk about that later. But there just wasn't quite enough fusion and there wasn't quite enough safety for minorities, I think, for that to ignite. And so I was just looking at it. I was like, you know... This might just need time, right? There's a lot that is happening. We're living in this weird moment. We need some discernment. The Spirit's at work, but God works in this much larger time frame than we do. So let's just stay alert. Let's keep our eyes open. But, you know, wherever Christianity is going, I just thought, you know, if it's going to renew, it needs to be led by black and brown Christians. It just has to be. Because they can best see the systemic issues that need disarming. And I use that word disarming deliberately because white supremacist theology has been breeding death. So I knew that the black progressive church existed. That stream has always been part of us. I was part of a black church tradition in college. So I was just like, I know they're meeting somewhere. Where are they meeting? There's got to be a black progressive church network. And I came up with TFAM. And bonus is led by a lesbian. Bishop Reverend Dr. Yvette Flunder, whose name you probably know because we pray for her every week. Tiny, petite little powerhouse of a woman in her 60s. Man, can she preach. She's a great singer. She's been a pastor for decades in the United Churches of Christ and the Metropolitan Churches. So if you don't know the Metropolitan Churches, they're essentially like the gay churches that arose in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Because if you were gay, you either went and sat in church closeted or if you wanted to go be out, you'd go to a metropolitan church. So she still holds her, her um, ordination, I believe, in both of those spaces. And I watched how she led. And I was like, man, this is a wise woman and healthy. I will say I grew so sick of following narcissistic leaders in white evangelicalism with a dream. And I just thought, this is a breath of fresh air. And so she founded TFAM in the year 2000 with the idea of it being a support space mainly for black 
queer clergy and lay leaders. And that pretty quickly evolved to become a space where it's just support for affirming leaders. And then now today, um, it's gathered far more people. You still have to be 100% affirming, right? So if you lead a church, that church has to be 100% affirming to be part of the organization. It was the only space on the American Christian landscape where this was true. And given my own sort of background, that felt important to me because I thought I do not want to go back into that like bee's nest again. I've been there, done that. Um, I want to support something that's, that's sort of reimagined what's going on. And so, I mean, this was just 23 years ago, right, that she founded this and didn't do it with this intention of it becoming big, but then it just started to grow as people saw there was sort of like a need for this on the American landscape. And so the leaders of TFAM just started envisioning like maybe this could be an umbrella space that is kind of recapturing the best of what had happened in the early Pentecostal movement where we can have all of the radically inclusive churches and leaders come together regardless of their denomination, their race, their gender, their sexual orientation, etc. And so today, just 23 years later, there's 500 pastors who are ordained through them. Um, it's not enormous. It's not nearly the size of major denominations, so I don't want to give the impression that it is. But 500 pastors and churches is not nothing, right? It's getting close to the size of the denomination that fired me. And TFAM is not a denomination. It's a multi-denominational group of churches who are hanging out on the margins and just exchanging ideas and support and theologies and ways of doing faith. So when I first went to the conference a few years ago, what I noticed or what I was kind of looking for was this shared journey toward the center. Like, was there a fermenting of all of the best of these things? And right, there's going to be a number of spaces, and that's going to look different with all these different organizations. But that was kind of the, the, the shared goal I was looking for. And so obviously, there was an embrace of interlocking justice and liberation. Um, it's inherently geared toward racial and queer justice, but it's also wholly embraced like Bishop William Barber in the Poor People's Campaign. So I don't know if you've heard of him He's a Disciples of Christ pastor, a very good preacher. Um, yeah, he's outstanding, the poor people's camp, if you've ever heard him. But they, they were kind of looking on the landscape, and they're like, man, he's doing, um, he's really centering poverty as a primary issue in our society, and the church needs to be doing that. So they had him in, and they, they consecrated him as a bishop so that they could bless what he was doing and elevate him. And that actually allowed him to be the speaker at, like, the Democratic National Convention at one point, right? So they're like, we see what you're doing, let's elevate that. Um, climate justice is just a natural part of the ethos there. There's a love of scripture, properly understood as a Jewish wisdom text, not as something to be weaponized against the oppressed. Almost everybody there has had scripture weaponized against them, right? So there's, it's like people who have had it weaponized, been able to go back to the scriptures and say, actually, there's something really beautiful here. Right? We can understand the gospel through the lens of marginalized people, and we can see its power for them and the good news. And then even though the music is sung, it's, it's more Pentecostal in that, um, and more of like an exuberant gospel tradition, there's also a real love and respect for some of the liturgical prayer practices. Um, at this last conference, Rachel and I went to a breakout session um, for worship, and there was a panel of different scholars who were giving a lot of attention to corporate silence and to meditation and what it might mean to incorporate those into our services, which we already do. 
And then there are pastors, of course, who are already from these liturgical um, quadrants who are in this, and they're writing subversive liturgies. So if you've not heard of like the Beyonce Mass, that's worth a Google. It's pretty amazing. So we join them for the ideas exchange, for accountability, for community. We have a bishop who we also pray for, so you'll know his name, Bishop Tim Wolfe. He leads a church. Um, he kind of oversees the Midwest out of Chicago. Um, the way I approach it is like, you know, I might be queer, but in a majority black denomination or organization, I'm still white. And so I feel like it's my posture, and our posture is a predominantly white church. Um, I think of it as like being a Jonathan to a David, if that makes any sense to you. Like, that's the posture that I'm trying to take, where Jonathan had this unearned privilege of being born the son of a king, but he recognized that it was David who really had God's blessing to lead, that that's where the spirit was resting. And so Jonathan supported David, who was the rightful leader. And so I try to come to the organization in this posture of support, right? So when a need is made known, I try and volunteer whatever we can offer. So as an example, there's a subgroup within TFAM that's called Trans Saints, right? And it's a lot of trans leaders led by Deacon Ryan out of Cincinnati. And Deacon Ryan came on our Midwest pastor call and he said, you know, I'm really trying to get help and organize support for um, a hospice in Mexico. Could I have some help? And so I said, yeah, I, whatever you need. You know, I don't, I don't need to like lead it or take charge, but whatever you need behind the scenes. And I'm only saying this to you so that you know as a church that like part of my time or part of the time that we're spending here um, is for me trying to assist other people so they can lead well, because I think this is part of what God is doing, right? So how can we breathe on what God is doing through groups like TFAM? How can we be good um, followers in that? So I thought I would just close out by reading a little bit a book that Bishop Yvette Plunder wrote. I mean, she wrote this 20 years ago. Some of it's a little bit almost out of date now. Um, but just so you can see, she, she's kind of thinking along the same lines that we are. It's called Where the Edge Gathers, Building a Community of Radical Inclusion. And I thought some of this would resonate for many of you, and this will also give you an idea of what she's up to. So she says, the theology of those at the center of society often seeks to characterize people out on the edge as enemies of God. And this is especially true when individuals or groups unrepentantly refuse to conform to the dominant definition of normativeness. You can see why I like her. Those who promote theologies that exclude certain races, cultures, sexual and gender orientations, and classes in the name of Jesus, would do well to remember that Jesus was himself from the edge of society with a ministry to those who were considered the least. Jung Young Lee, describing the marginality and ministry of Jesus, says Jesus' public ministry may best be characterized as a life of marginality. He was a homeless man with a group of homeless people around him. The people that Jesus called to be his disciples were marginalized people. None came from the religious establishment, most were fishermen, except for a tax collector and a clerk, G uh, Judas, who betrayed Jesus. And his other associations were primarily the poor, the weak, the outcast, foreigners, and prostitutes. She says, contempt for the church and all things religious often stems from exposure to oppressive theology, biblical literalism, which is what we're working against, and unyielding tradition. 
A person, church, or society can do extreme harm when that harm is done in the name of God and virtue and with the quote-unquote support of Scripture. And I'll end it with this. I don't usually, if you're new, I don't usually read a whole lot to us. I just think this is helpful. She says, an assurance of relationship with God provides a security to interpret critically the scriptures and traditions that have alienated so many for so long. I'll say that again. An assurance of relationship with God provides a security to interpret critically and the scriptures and traditions that have alienated so many for so long. Right, so what's at question is not your belonging to God, to the people of God, and that when we create these spaces where that is not the question, and we know that we're secure in our relationship with God, that means we can ask a lot of questions, right? That means that we can innovate. It means that we can have our rummage sale and get rid of the toxic stuff. Does that make sense? It's like, it's like secure attachment to God in some ways. Um, and so that's the kind of space that we're trying to create. That's the kind of uh, organizations and fellow travelers that we're looking for when we're looking for friends. So with that, we do usually do a minute or two of corporate silence or guided prayer. And I thought, let's just spend this time in some silence, letting the Spirit say whatever the Spirit would like to say to you. Um, and if it's helpful to you to just sit in that knowledge that your, your security with God or your belonging to God or God's community is not in question. We'll just take a minute to do that, and I'll let you know when that's up. People make noise. I'm not worried about some noise. Come, Spirit, and just speak to us in this space. Yeah, Jesus, first we just say thank you that we have a place at your table, that our belonging to you is not in question no matter who we are, where we come from, what we've done, even if we're not sure that we even believe in you, that creator, um, your, your openness and your space 
is a wide embrace, and we thank you for that. We ask that you would give us eyes to see what the different treasures are, um, that we can help be part of this, this reforming of, of what is happening so that we can more clearly see you and your project and what it is that you are doing to bring about justice and peace um, and increased love and cooperation in the earth. We know that we're not alone. We know we're not a majority, but we know that there are fellow travelers. As we were in the silence, I just kept thinking of that old song. There's a verse that's, though none go with me, still I will follow. Um, and I just kind of feel that in my spirit this morning of like this journey to the center that you would just guide us and that what we're discovering will be enough good news that other people will also see it and say, yeah, that is good news. I want, I want to try that project as well. Um, I feel grieved over the state of the message of Jesus in our country and how entwined it's become in, in like American nationalism. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would continue to give us the tools so that we can more clearly show who you are. I ask all of this in your name. Amen.